The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Why study the Middle Ages? First of all, I'm going to deal with a few common misconceptions. It seems to me that in Protestantism, you have to make more of a case generally for studying the Middle Ages than either the patristic era or the Reformation era. The Reformation era is obvious. It's where Protestantism started. In a seminary like this, I probably don't have to persuade many of you that the Reformation is theologically important because that's the tradition you come from. Whether you describe yourself as Reformed, Lutheran, Evangelical or whatever, you will acknowledge in some way that your tradition is profoundly shaped by what goes on in the 16th century. At a deeper level, if you have any historical theological sensitivity at all, you will also appreciate the importance of the patristic era. Roughly, should we say, 100 AD to 500 AD, something like that. You might do that for a variety of reasons. You might do it on the basis of, hey, these were the guys who were closest to the New Testament period, and therefore, whatever decline was setting in was somewhat less bad than the decline that set in later. You might do it at a more sophisticated level. You might have read the Reformers and realised how often a figure like Augustine is cited by the Reformers. And you might have reflected on that and made the connection. Hey, the Reformers are citing Augustine's authority, therefore, he's obviously some kind of good chap. He's obviously theologically important for my tradition. He may have lived a thousand, twelve hundred years before the people who are my heroes lived, but he's clearly important for shaping the tradition they came from. If you read B.B. Warfield, you might well be familiar with his famous comment that the Reformation is the triumph of Augustine's understanding of grace over Augustine's understanding of the church. Captures nicely the importance of Augustine for the reformers and the Reformation tradition. But Augustine's not the only one. Athanasius, Irenaeus, all of these characters, if you look hard and deep enough at your Reformation writers, they're all cited and often cited favorably. You go to church on a Sunday morning and you recite the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, or it's in the back of your book even if you never recite it, little signs of the patristic era, the early church era, is important for your tradition. Albeit you are Protestants, you acknowledge the importance of patristic thinking for your tradition. The same, of course, is not true of the Middle Ages. Why is it not true of the Middle Ages? Why don't we instinctively think of the Middle Ages as being important to our tradition? I think there are a number of reasons. First, and at a kind of general cultural level, I think we all buy into the sort of enlightenment language about the Middle Ages that tends to cast it as the Dark Ages. It is something of a generalization, but there's a lot of truth in it to say that history is ultimately written by the people who win. The side that wins writes the history. And the Middle Ages, if you like, 
in the long run of things are perceived to have lost. Much the same way as in many quarters now the Reformation seemed to have lost. The Enlightenment labelled that which had gone before it as obscurantist, as dark, as obscure. So the first reason I think why we are perhaps less sympathetic to studying the medieval church than we are to studying the patristic church or the Reformation church is that many of us have instinctively bought into the idea that the medieval church is a period of theological, intellectual, cultural darkness. Come back to that in a few minutes. It's self-evidently wrong when you think about it for any length of time. I want to say the myth of the Dark Ages, if you like. Secondly, many of us see it as antithetical to Protestantism. Again, I think we have to distinguish here between <coughs> the different degrees and different ways in which people see the Middle Ages as antithetical to Protestantism. At a popular level, you'll often find the idea that the Middle Ages is antithetical to Protestantism because the Middle Ages was an era of great corruption in the church. Popes had wives, priests had illegitimate children, all of these things. There's a certain amount of truth in that. The problem, of course, <coughs> is that precisely the same failure to live up to stated moral codes applies to Protestantism as it does to medieval Catholicism. Zwingli got his girlfriend pregnant before he got married. Samuel Rutherford got his girlfriend pregnant before he got married. You only have to look at the history of the Reformation in England or Germany to see how much of the Reformation uh, failed to get rid of the corruptions of the medieval church that it pointed its fingers at. So, the moral issue, while many of us have been brought up to see the Middle Ages as a period of unremitting corruption and spiritual decline in terms of moral practice, I think the dividing line between the Middle Ages and the Reformation is somewhat fuzzier than many of us would like to acknowledge on that line. At a more sophisticated level, of course, we have the Reformers themselves defining themselves over against medieval theologians. If you look at Luther, what does Luther do? He talks at great length about these theologians of glory, as he calls them. These theologians who, he would say, quite simply create God in their own image. Rather than looking to God as he's revealed himself in Christ, these theologians of glory, they make Christ the God in their own image. They make God a bigger version of themselves. So you have there in Luther a picture of a man defining himself over himself and against medieval theologians. You have a similar thing in Calvin, where he constantly talks about the scholastic, the medieval scholastics, and defines himself over against them. What is more interesting, however, is when you start to look at the specific charges that the reformers bring against the medieval schoolmen. When you look at Luther's knowledge of medieval theology, it is restricted almost entirely to those, to those theologians and that theological tradition that he himself emerged from. What he's doing is he's generalizing out from his own narrow experience of a particular strand of the medieval tradition. When Calvin trashes the scholastics in the Latin editions of his Institutes of Christian Religion, and you cross-reference these references to scholastics to the French edition. In the French edition, 
he talks about the theologians of the Sorbonne, those theologians in Paris of whom he had direct personal experience in his theological upbringing. So what you have in the Reformation, yes, is men defining themselves over against what's gone on before them in the Middle Ages. But when you get down to the nitty-gritty and look at the details, you find that you find they're often generalizing out from very, very narrow experience of the medieval tradition. Or generalizing out to score polemical points based on one or two doctrines. There are fundamental points of discontinuity between the Reformation and the Middle Ages. But there are also significant points of continuity between the two periods. Uh, the Trinity, for example. The discussions about necessity and contingency and the nature of God. These are discussions that continue through the Middle Ages and on into the Reformation and into Protestantism. Medieval church is Trinitarian. Reformation church is Trinitarian. The discussion has gone on for a thousand years and continues within Protestantism. Predestination, necessity, contingency, discussions that have gone on in the medieval church continue to go on in Protestantism. What happens, I think, what I like to see is happening in the Reformation, is that you have a Western tradition Broadly speaking, Augustinian, it splits into two. Issues of authority, the nature of the church, the nature of justification. These are the points where the reformers break with the medieval tradition. So when you think about the Middle Ages and the Reformation, is it a clean break or is it absolute continuity? It's neither. It's a balance sheet. Some things change, some things remain substantially the same. The second that drives us away from taking the Middle Ages seriously is that it's antithetical to Protestantism. Third point, <coughs> theology was corrupt. What I would have to say, I think, from a Protestant perspective that I would have to say, yes, there's significant power in this criticism in certain areas. <coughs> the theology, certainly, in the way it's used in the later Middle Ages, is used for corrupt ends often. Those of you who did Reformation, who've looked at the Reformation, think about the selling of indulgences by Tetzel. Grace being used essentially to generate a profit for the church. Corrupt theology meets corrupt practice. Having said that, as I've already alluded to, there is a lot of theology in the Middle Ages that is, is good theology. Theology on the doctrine of God, the attributes of God. If the patristic era spent a long time wrestling with how God could become human without demeaning himself, there's a sense in which the Middle Ages changed the question slightly to why God became human, how he achieved salvation through that act. And many of the patterns and ideas that were developed in the Middle Ages are picked up and developed by the reformers later. You should look in a couple of weeks' time at Anselm of Canterbury. The Anselmic argument on atonement sets the agenda for the reformers' understanding of atonement some years later, some centuries later. So the theology, there are corrupt elements to it, but there are also many, many strong elements to it. And I want to suggest to you that to, when you go away and you look at the medieval thinkers, don't just look at the theological treatise, look also at the prayers 
the prayers of Aquinas and Anselm and company. If I hadn't listed the two um, women mystics, I would probably have listed another volume of selections from Anselm. Um, Anselm's Prayers and Meditations, published by Penguin. Again, it gives you a different dimension to medieval theology. The meditative, devotional aspect to this theology, which again, I think, is picked up and developed by the reformers. There is a stream of piety that continues through the Middle Ages and on into the Reformation. So the theology, I want to say, yes, there are elements of it that are corrupt. The understanding of assurance, the understanding of justification, the understanding of the authority of the church, these are elements that I would say need to be reformed and corrected. I don't regard the Reformation as a tragedy on one level. It was a tragedy, a tragedy that ever had to happen. But it had to happen. It had to happen for a whole variety of reasons. But having said that, what the Reformation did from my perspective was it took the best of the Middle Ages and reformed the rest. It didn't break cleanly with the Middle Ages and leave it all behind. So the third reason that theology is corrupt, and I, well, I often use this example, you often get thrown up in, in textbooks about, of course, you know, the scholastics debated how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. Not sure that I've ever come across the question in exactly that form in the Middle Ages, but I said to classes before, in fact, it's an extremely important question. It sounds like trivia to us. It sounds like trivia. But just think about it. When you try to work out how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, what you're actually trying to do is to work out the relationship between divine space and earthly space. Between time, if you like, and eternity. It's an extremely important question. It may be a trivial example, a trivial application of the question, but the underlying thinking behind that question is extremely important. How do angels occupy space? How do they appear to people? How does God and Christ fill all in all, and yet Christ is at the right hand of the Father? A whole variety of important questions relate to the issue of angels dancing on the head of a pin. So, don't be put off, I would say, by popular Protestant propaganda. You can be put off by my propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly not popular. But, uh, but don't be put off by the sort of popular cheap shot Protestant propaganda. The medieval theologians, even when they were wrong, were extremely sophisticated. And extremely sophisticated people who are wrong have to be refuted at an extremely sophisticated level. They're generally not susceptible to cheap shots. So just beware. When Spurgeon dismisses the whole of the Middle Ages in a single line in one of his sermons, there may just be more to it. So then, I want to say a, 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 a sort of contrary to these points, that the Middle Ages were extremely fertile. <coughs> and I don't even have to look at theology to argue that. Where do universities come from? Universities come from the Middle Ages. You don't get universities developing in periods of no intellectual endeavour, of intellectual sterility. The great universities, Paris, Cambridge, if you consider Oxford a great university, I suppose we can allow Oxford as well. Bologna, places like this, founded in the Middle Ages, sign of immense and intense intellectual activity. More great intellectual foundations probably founded in the Middle Ages than any time since. 
So the idea that the Middle Ages is somehow dark and intellectually sterile is arrant nonsense, even at an institutional level. Even at an institutional level. If we're looking for dark ages intellectual sterility, I would say count the number of business schools founded in any particular era. That tells you something about the intellectual sterility <laughs> of a culture. Games, just an aside. I suppose actually, you know, one could substitute law schools perhaps in there. That would be a slightly darker edge to the Middle Ages. Uh, lawyers and businessmen, they just don't like it. <laughs> so, extremely fertile period of intellectual endeavour, and you only have to look also at some of the literature being produced. Chaucer, Piers Plowman, great literature being produced in the Middle Ages. And then you look at some of the theological systems being produced. Aquinas' Summa Theologiae. You may not agree with some of it, you may not agree with all of it, but you have to admit it is a massively impressive intellectual product. It is, if you like, a cathedral of the mind. And Aquinas isn't the only one. Many Summae produced in the Middle Ages. Massive intellectual productions. We don't know at a popular level, about the massive number of biblical commentaries that were produced. But all of the great medieval theologians had to start their careers as lecturers on the Bible. Aquinas wrote massive biblical commentaries. They're not translated, many of them. They're not popularly available. They've been sort of buried in university vaults. But these guys were very interested in biblical exegetes, not just dry, arid reproduction of a philosophical system that had been established some time earlier. They were biblical exegetes as well. So I want to suggest that in a whole variety of ways, the Middle Ages was an extremely fertile period for intellectual endeavour. <coughs> Secondly, I've already mentioned this, the continuities. <coughs> Trinity. Doctrine of God. These things stand in continuity both with what went on in the patristic era and in what follows in the Reformation and post-Reformation period. 17th century reformed people were always going back and looking at the medieval peoples. Why did they look at the medievals? Because the 17th century reformed people, like the medievals, taught theology in universities and they wanted to know how to do it. They may have disagreed with some of the theology that was taught, but the great structures were already in place. Why reinvent the wheel when it's already been done and proved to be successful? So as theology in the Reformation, as Protestantism establishes itself in the universities, there are not just theological continuities, say, in terms of Trinity, predestination between the Middle Ages and the Reformation. There are continuities in terms of the way the thing was taught. Don't be misled into thinking that the Reformation is the most intellectually significant thing that happens in the sort of 800 years between 1000 AD and 1800 AD. It isn't. It's extremely politically important. It's theologically important for the church. But the things that really change the way people think in Europe are the rediscovery of much of Aristotle in the 12th century and the enlightenment of the late 17th and early 18th century. These are the things that transform university curricula across Europe, and therefore fundamentally transform the way Europeans learn and think about themselves. So while the Reformation is of singular importance 
in understanding the authority of the church and salvation, in terms of the transformation of the way people learn, it has to take, I think, third place to the founding of medieval universities and then the reforming of those old universities along Enlightenment lines in the 18th century. And the third thing, of course, I prefer to read history forward rather than back. <clears throat> but one has to say that without the Middle Ages, without the developments that took place in the Middle Ages, without the questions that were thrown up in the Middle Ages, one would have had no Reformation. Luther's Reformation is response to questions that are being thrown up in late medieval theology and pastoral practice. So the Reformation, the Middle Ages, are important to understanding the Reformation. If you want to understand, those of you who come from Reformed or Protestant traditions, you really want to understand your traditions, what they are, the way they are, one of the pieces in that jigsaw has to be a proper understanding of the Middle Ages. You've got to understand how the Middle Ages fit into the wider picture in order to understand why you are who you are. What Calvin does is he reforms the way the biblical commentary is done. But if you mean commentary as in something that is commenting on the biblical text, engaging in biblical exegesis, attempting to expand what the text means, clearly that goes right the way back to the patristic era. What happens over time is that the nature of the idea of commentary changes. You see that today, of course. If you go into the library and you wanted to check out, say, all the commentaries in the last 50 years that have been written in the book of Ephesians, you might have 100 examples of 75 different literary genres. Somebody's writing a commentary that's a social context. Somebody else is doing a redaction, <coughs> critical commentary. So, you know, today's a good example of the definition of commentary now is incredibly broad. What Calvin really does is reform how commentary is understood in the 16th century. He makes it a lot shorter, essentially. But he's certainly not the first person to write an extended comment, shall we say, upon the biblical text. Have you done the Reformation course? No. Come along next year and all the name clear. Right. <clears throat> Approaching this course, I want to talk a little bit about my own approach so that you are neither disturbed, well, you might still be disturbed by it, but at least you'll understand where I'm coming from. Uh, I'm a history of ideas man. History of ideas is a bad phrase in some quarters. There's connotations of ideas just dropping out of the stratosphere. Pow, and there they are. That's not the way I do history of ideas. I don't think that ideas just drop out of the sky. What you have in my way of doing history of ideas is a focus upon key thinkers, why they are shaped the way they are shaped at this particular point in time, and what they do. I say to students, when somebody writes a book, they don't just write something, they also do something. Writing a book is an action, in the same way as fighting a duel is an action, or raising interest rates is an action. And I'm interested in seeing what actions are being done by particular ideas at particular points in time. So what I want to look at in this course is ideas, how they took shape, what people were doing with them. Why is it, if you like, that Aquinas could only occur in the 13th century. Couldn't have occurred in the 12th century, couldn't have occurred in the 14th century. In other words, if you like, my second 
point, I would emphasize the context. Now, I know that some always think that as soon as you start thinking about context, you start to relativize. How much easier life would be if ideas did just drop straight down into our laps and we were able to say, this is right, this is wrong. Once you start looking at the context, things become a lot more complicated. What you won't get in my courses is easy answers, I hope. I don't see it as my job necessarily to tell you that X is right and Y is wrong. I see it as my job to help you to read these people for yourselves and to think about them for yourselves. I have strong opinions on these guys. If you ask me privately whether I think they're right or wrong, I'll give you a straight answer. But in my classes, my purpose is to make you read the tradition for yourself and to think about it for yourselves. There is a strong tendency in all places of higher education for students and even staff to allow others to do their reading and thinking for them. I don't want to do that. That's why I've asked you to choose a book. You choose the book. You think about it. You come and tell me about it in the exam. I want you to do the thinking. So I'm going to be here introducing you to these guys and these girls, helping you to think about them. But I'm not necessarily going to be going on a checklist saying, yeah, he's right on this, he's wrong on that. It's not my way. That leads on to our next point. I want to help in the development of Catholic theology. And by this, I precisely don't mean a Roman Catholic theology. I'm an ordained elder in the Free Church of Scotland. We generally speaking, don't have a lot of time for Roman Catholic theology. <laughs> what I mean by Catholic is a theology that is built through a sound reading of the whole Christian tradition. One of the things I most love about the 17th century Puritans that I study is the way they draw on thinkers from all branches of the Christian tradition. And what I want to do in this class is to suggest to you that there is some great stuff in the Middle Ages for reading and thinking about. It's not all correct, but quite often it's the people who are incorrect that can stimulate some of those interesting thoughts. They can be sort of axes to sh uh, uh, they can be sort of blocks to sharpen your own axe against. And what I want to do is introduce you to characters that you can read, and if there's good stuff there, appropriate it. If there isn't good stuff there, work out why it isn't good. Sharpen your own position in relation to it. So when I say I hope this course helps in the development of a Catholic theology, I don't mean to say let's go back beyond the Reformation. For me, the Reformation is a glorious moment in the Church's history in many ways. Shameful in others, but glorious in, in many ways. But I want to try to encourage you to think for yourselves broadly. Anselm was faced with the question of, why did God become human? This is how he wrestled with this problem in his day and age. Is there anything I can learn from the way he wrestled with the problem? Thomas Aquinas struggled with the idea of how we can use language meaningfully about God. Now, I may disagree with the, the answer he came up with, but is there something I can learn from the way that he wrestled with the problem that will help me today? So I want to suggest, as my sort of final concluding point to this, this section, and I think we'll take, a, we'll take a break, that those of you sitting out there thinking, oh, I was coming along to this class, and I know that Truman guy is a kind of very conservative person or something. I was expecting him, 
you know, take me on a trolley bus tour and say, this guy's rubbish, this guy's good, this guy's half rubbish and half good. <laughs> what Truman's going to do instead is to take you on a tour and say, these are the problems these guys faced. They're not a million miles away from the problems we face today. This is how they wrestled with them. Are there any lessons there for you to learn? Go away and think about it. I tell you that now to avoid disappointment later. I don't want somebody telling me on my end of term assessment. I thought he was going to tell me that these guys were all right or wrong and he didn't do it. I'm not setting out to do that. I don't want to do your thinking for you. I want you to do your thinking for you. I'm here merely to help you on the road of thinking for yourselves. Some basic issues. Well, I suppose the best thing to do is to... Uh, <coughs> yeah. Basic timeline. It's a thousand years, it's a long time. And the periodization that we have of the Middle Ages is overdrawn, really. Uh, there is a sense in which, if you read Augustine's City of God, quite clearly aware that he's living in a time of great change and transition. But of course he wasn't thinking, gosh, I'm the last of the fathers and you know, 31st of December, the Middle Ages is going to start or something like that. So the periodization we have is somewhat false. Broadly speaking, I want to draw, uh, draw the ear into a series of uh, 600 to 700 called Late Patristic. I shan't do much on this era. We'll touch on it a bit when we look at the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, Lake Patristic. I think probably more, more significant when we come to the Eastern Orthodox Church than many of the guys we're going to be looking at. Um, then what I call broadly the Carolingian period, though again it's very broadly drawn, say 700 to 900. This is when the papacy very much starts to draw itself draw close to the power of the Franks and the Frankish kingdoms. And so you've got the empire, capitals in Constantinople, but the political basis for what will lace for what to become the church split starts to develop at this point, with the Pope naturally looking towards those in Western Europe to provide him with his political and military muscle, as opposed to Constantinople, which is a long, long way away. Um, guys like Alcuin. Carolingian, 700 to 900. Then 10th to 11th centuries, you see the rise of the cathedral schools, the foundations really of what will become uh, the medieval university system. The 12th century, the discovery of Aristotle, 13th century, dominated to a large extent by Aquinas. And then our 14th and 15th centuries, really head towards the Reformation. The church enters a period of really crisis in its own authority, a series of charismatic figures rise who descend from the church's main teachings. Um, so that, broadly speaking, is the periodization I intend to use. Basic issues, basic theological issues. Influence of Augustine, absolutely basic. I would suggest as reading for this week, if you can get hot, if the Medieval Theologians books comes in, read the chapter by John Rist on Augustine of Hippo. Augustine is absolutely basic. I know a number of you like me to comment on this last term, but it is, I think, uh, true to say, and also perhaps slightly ironic, 
that Western Europe, the biggest cultural influence in Western Europe for a thousand years was, of course, in Africa. But you cannot understand the Middle Ages without coming to grips with Augustine. So I would suggest if you get hold of this book, your reading for this week can be the chapter on Augustine by John Rist. The influence of Augustine is massive, provides the fundamental trajectories of Trinitarian discussion in the West. You'll know that there's always a slight, what we call, slight modalist problem in the West. There's a tendency perhaps to have less problem with the oneness of God than the threeness of God. And it's part and parcel in some way of Augustine's legacy to the West. Anti-Pelagianism, predestination, baptism, discussions of these things all depend upon writings and insights of St. Augustine. Anti-Donatism, Donatism, a particular view of the church and of authority. Augustine was an anti-Donatist. His anti-Donatist writings set the tone for the Western understanding of the church as a visible body and of the church's authority. So Augustine, massively significant. I don't intend to give a lecture on him, but those of you who didn't come to the patristics course, haven't done the patristics course yet, ought to do a little bit of reading around Augustine in order to get the context set for this course. And the book I would recommend by Augustine is the Confessions. If you only read one book by Augustine, it's the Confession. Other issues. Authority. It's one of the issues that divides East from West to a certain extent. The primacy of the Roman See. But also the issue of revelation. Is the church's teaching as defined by the Pope a separate stream of revelation to that of Scripture? Does the Pope's authority represent the definitive interpretation of Scripture and therefore not strictly therefore not dependent of it? The Middle Ages, I think, probably made a more significant contribution to the logic of theology than any period before or since. By logic, I mean particularly the study of language, how words are used theologically. Extremely important to the Middle Ages, from 500 onwards, a careful analysis of how language is used. How do you relate faith and reason, faith and human understanding within the Christian framework? At an institutional level, rise of schools and universities. What seems to happen in the, in the Middle Ages is, in the later early Middle Ages, if that makes sense, you have the rise of charismatic teaching figures. Some of them itinerate. Gradually, charismatic teaching figures become associated with particular cathedrals. Schools develop around them, and these schools provide the basis for the medieval university system. The rise of schools and universities, very, very important for the development of medieval theology. And the final point I want to make, of all cultures in the world, Western medieval Europe is the only one that managed to modernize itself from the inside. That's not true of any other culture that I know of. Its science modernized itself. Its thinking modernized itself essentially from the inside out. Western Europe, through the development of universities, for a variety of reasons, modernizes itself in a way that no other culture does. And that's another reason, I think, going back to the first half of this class, why we should beware of looking down our noses at the Middle Ages. What the medieval Western European culture does is quite remarkable and unique. An amazing achievement. 
and you still see the differences today. I remember a few years ago when uh, I think it was a Japanese merchant bank or investment bank collapsed and they had the chief executive of the bank on the television weeping and begging the forgiveness of the people who worked for him. And initially I was struck by the amazing contrast between that and what goes on in Britain, or you could even say today in America with Enron or something, what happens there? The chief executive either disappears to some tax haven and you never see him again, or he does what the Enron guy is doing at the moment and then stands up and says, nothing to do with me, not my fault, I didn't do anything wrong. No sense of responsibility to his workers really whatsoever. Why is that? It's because the Enron executive, I think, comes from a society that modernized itself over a long period of time. What happened in Japan is essentially you had a feudal society that suddenly became an advanced capitalist society. And the same big names that you had in the feudal society in Japan, the samurai, are the big names that you have in industry in Japan today. You have advanced capitalism linked in this amazing way to a society that preserves feudal structure and feudal values. So when the feudal lord fails his people, he feels that he's failed his people. He goes public with it. And I was watching this guy thinking, this man's going to go out and commit ritual suicide after he's done this. Quite remarkable the way that uh, Western Europe modernized itself and produce a society with a radically different set of values and a different way of going about its business than any other society in the world. So, I'll also then flag up as we move through this that what you have in the Middle Ages is not a static preservation of a science or a social structure or a way of going about life. You have a society that with increasing rapidity modernizes itself and moves towards the world of the Reformation, the world of the Renaissance, the world of early modernity, if you like. Let's look very briefly at the lecture schedule, what I want to do. I want to do today, introduction, that's what I'm doing today. Carol Engineera, where some of the basic ideas of predestination, sacramental theology, were hammered out. But Tramless, people like that, working on issues of importance in predestination, sacraments. Anselm and Abelard, two men who offer two very different but very significant views of Christ's atonement to the extent that most views of Christ's atonement have been formulated since embody elements of both to a large extent. Anselm also, of course, famous for the ontological proof of God's existence, various fundamental treaties on theology, many of which are contained in the major works. Bernard of Clairvaux and his contemporaries, one look at Bernard, uh, one of the most important figures from the Reformation perspective, Bernard of Clairvaux is one of the people most often cited by Calvin. Calvin regards him as a church father, same as he regards Augustine as a church father. He doesn't cite Bernard and say, normally I cite the patristics, but now I'm citing Bernard. As far as he's concerned, Bernard and Augustine all part of the same kind of sound theological movement. Bernard of Clairvaux we'll look at. Um, amazing contrast in Bernard between some of the prayers and writings and some of the things he advocates doing in the Crusades. Um, current and Eastern Orthodoxy. 
the Eastern Church, as you will know, from really the period of the patristic period, 4th, 5th century, there are tensions and differences developing between the Eastern and the Western Churches, particularly in the area of Trinitarian dogma and incarnation. Filioque clause added some, I think sometime in the 6th, 7th century by the group in Spain, always proved difficult in the early Middle Ages. Um, 1054 is the formal split between East and West. We'll be looking at uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, why it goes in separate direction. What are the major tenets of Eastern Orthodoxy? Very, very interesting phenomenon. Partly because of the, the strongly negative construction of its theology. A friend of mine in Romania said to me, talking about Eastern Orthodoxy, he said, these people are so proud of what they can't know about God. He said they're more sure about what they can't know than what they can know. Six, rise of the schoolmen, my particular heroes, uh, Albert the Great and company, developing a comprehensive way of doing theology with a university setting. Well, of course, we talk about university, we're talking here about Christian foundations, of course. Don't think in light of secular university. Think church, Christian foundations. Rise of the schoolmen, very important. Seven, Thomas Aquinas needs no justification. Uh, discussing him. He is, after Augustine, one of the most significant Christian thinkers uh, since, well, since St. Augustine. Uh, love him or hate him. <laughs> love him or hate him. You have to address the questions that he raises. And if you're doing theology intelligently, you have to engage with him at some point, whether you agree with him or disagree with him. I think as well, he's also one of the most, must have been one of the most wonderful Christian teachers because he writes with such clarity. The mistake a lot of people make is they want to read books on Aquinas before they read Aquinas himself. People who write about Aquinas are, generally speaking, tedious, incomprehensible bores, with one or two exceptions. You might want to edit that out. I haven't mentioned any names, so I can't fit where, I suppose. But Aquinas himself is never boring, and whether you agree with him or disagree with him, he's usually crystal clear in what he's actually saying. There is one exception. So that two exceptions to that rule on books on Aquinas that I'll mention at the time. Eight, medieval mysticism. Um, I, I've always adamantly refused to teach on mysticism because I took the view, hey, the mystics themselves say that what they're dealing with can't be expressed in words. How can I teach in words on something that can't be expressed in words? It seems to me to be self-referentially incoherent. Um, but I changed my mind, partly because I like Hildegard of Bingen's music and probably a good chance to play some in class. <laughs> partly because um, two of the greatest medieval mystics are women. And I think it's an interesting insight uh, into uh, women's contribution to medieval theology. I think also, um, for an elitist like me, I hate to do it for this reason, I'm really just an intellectual snob at the end of the day, but more people probably read Hildegard of Bingen today, are influenced by Hildegard of Bingen, than read Thomas Aquinas and influenced by him. And while Hildegard of Bingen is vastly superior to Frank Peretti, one could say that if you're going to assess the, theolo the theology, uh, the importance of the theology of any particular era, you've got to take account of what people are actually reading. I always used to joke with colleagues in Aberdeen and say, who was the most... Uh, significant uh, New Testament. Uh, who was the most significant biblical commentator of the 20th century? And you get answers like Bultmann or Kaiserman or whatever. 
answer was no, C.I. Schofield. All people own the Schofield Bible and are influenced by C.I. Schofield and by anybody else in the 20th century. I think that's self-evidently true. Um, so there's an element, I think, in looking at the medieval mystics that it's interesting to look at what they're saying and ask the question of what are they doing then and why are they so popular now? So there's a whole variety of reasons I've become converted to the idea that it is important to discuss medieval mysticism. It is also important, I think, because the whole idea of the category of mysticism is a late imposition upon the tradition. There are mystical dimensions to most, if not all, decent medieval theologians. There is a mystical dimension to Aquinas. And I want to bring out in that lecture the fact that mysticism, you had not got groups of mystics and groups of scholastics doing different things. The boundaries between them were often fuzzy and fluid. Read some of Aquinas' prayers, read his, his biography, you can see the mystic dimension in his own life. Rise of voluntarism, greater and greater emphasis upon the will of God, upon the unknowability of God in the later Middle Ages, paves the way for the Reformation in many ways. The great heretics, I use the word heretic there in a purely historical sense, uh, John Wycliffe, Huss, the Valdensians, groups of significant dissenters that developed in the Middle Ages. Generally speaking, only dangerous to the church when they were allied with charismatic leader figures like John Wycliffe, like John Huss. Problems of authority. Uh, we'll look at, as you will know, the uh, papacy moved to Avignon in the 14th century, and at times, uh, into the early 15th century, you had three popes all claiming to be the pope in different places. Uh, crises of authority that were thrown up by the church in the Middle Ages. I'm going to spend some time looking at those. And then finally, the end of medieval Christendom. 